We are in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning, so we will project it on the screen, but it's good for you to have it open on your phone or in your, in your lap on your, in an actual paper, paper Bible, which, you know, they actually still make. I don't know if you knew that, but they do. Um, so there's this little town in Illinois some years ago, a group of older men were, were gathered around and, and, and sharing war stories, and there was one guy in that group that spoke up. He'd never talked about his experiences in the war, but today he told them that he'd served in the Marines during Korea, and he told them about some of the battles he'd been through, and turns out he was in some really hot action and, and uh, in fact, got wounded and, and captured by the enemy and was a POW for a while. And uh, the other guys in that group said, you know, this guy's name was Jack. They said, Jack, we had no idea. We need to let people know uh, the kind of hero you were. And so they went and spread the word. Pretty soon, Jack found himself kind of a local celebrity. And, and he, he was the one, he was the guy they called upon from then on, whenever it was Veterans Day or Memorial Day to come and speak to school kids or to lead the parade or uh, to come to the VFW. And, and there was only problem, one problem with that, and that was that none of it was true. That Jack, on the spot, had made up that story. And maybe he'd had too much to drink, maybe it was just a desire to fit in, maybe a little embarrassed that he hadn't served like those other guys had, but he'd made up the story. And now he had to cover for it. Now he had to, now he had to prop up that story that he'd told. So he ordered a Marine uniform online and some medals that he could wear on special occasions. And he, he, he actually forged a... a a government form so he could get a, a disabled veteran's license plate because people ask him, why don't you have one of these, Jack? And uh, so for, for several years, he carried this. And in fact, after a while, he told his story so many times and added different details. Some of those details started not to add up to people who'd actually been in Korea. And so they started asking questions. There was a local veterans group that actually started investigating Jack and asking him questions. And for two years, there was this pressure of, uh, are you telling the truth? Finally, after two years of that, at the age of 71, Jack admitted that he'd made it all up. He came clean. And the military has a term for that. It's called stolen valor. Some of you have heard this. So when you claim acts of courage that you didn't actually perform, you're stealing the valor that, that real men and women have actually done. Now, in a spiritual sense, in a moral sense, Jesus had a term for it as well. And that is the term hypocrite, hypocrisy. You may not know this, but Jesus didn't actually invent the term hypocrite. That was not made up by him. It was a term that was in common use, but for a different purpose in his time. Uh, actors who got up on the stage and pretended to be someone else who played a role for our entertainment, the word for that in Greek was hypocrite. And so Jesus took that word and repurposed it. He said, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the men you look up to as your spiritual leaders, they're just actors, they're playing a role. They're not as good as they say they are. They're not as close to God as they claim to be. Is it any wonder those men wanted Jesus dead? He was exposing them for what they were. Now, it's ironic, I think, that today, most of the time when you hear the word hypocrite, it's aimed at the followers of Jesus. Now, I would submit that there's way more hypocrisy in the world of politics than there is in the world of religion, but that's just me. Uh, but I do say we bring it on ourselves often, this charge of hypocrisy. Now, I know you've probably heard it, haven't you, as People have said, no, I would never go to church. Those places are full of hypocrites. Is that true of First Baptist Conroe? Is that true of us today? Well, thank you for that, but we'll talk more about it. <laughs> what would Jesus say about us? That's what I wanna talk about this morning. 
in verses one through six of Revelation. This is part of uh, chapters two and three of Revelation. We're not doing the whole book of Revelation. I did that five years ago, and, and I can send you the notes if you need them. But what we're looking at are the chapters two and three, because a lot of folks don't understand that Revelation is actually a letter. Is a letter to real people who lived 2,000 years ago in seven different churches in Asia Minor, what we know today as Turkey. These were people who were experiencing persecution for the first time in their lives. The Roman Empire for the first time was empire-wide, was really cracking down on, on Christianity. And Jesus wrote Revelation as a way to say, listen, I know it's hard, but I win in the end, which means you win, so don't give up hope. Now, in chapters two and three, before he really gets started on all the prophecy, he has a special message for each one of those seven churches. And I believe those seven messages have something to say to our church today. So, verse one of chapter three. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So if you've been with us through this series or if you know chapters two and three, you probably are aware there's a couple of things about this letter that's different than the other six. And the first one is, that Jesus doesn't praise the church at Sardis at all. In all the other six letters, and no matter how harsh he is toward them, he always starts by saying, I know the good things you're doing, I see them and I'm happy about it. But here he just goes straight into, listen, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Can we just take a little sidebar and admit that a lot of us are way too concerned about our reputation and not nearly concerned enough about our character? The church at Sardis had a great reputation, but they had no reality behind it. And when it comes down to it, it's great to have a good reputation, but it's far, far better to have good character because that's who you really are. You can fool people into thinking you're a good person. You can fool people into thinking you're a man or a woman of God. We can fool people into thinking we're a powerful uh, Bible-preaching church. If we're not really that, though, Jesus knows the truth. Character is better than reputation, and that's what Jesus is saying here. So there's no praise for Sardis. In fact, in fact he, he uses another image to get, get this across to them. Sardis was known for producing woolen garments. So if you lived in that area and you had enough money, you probably owned a coat from Sardis that you wore during the winter. And Jesus says, your garments are dirty. You got them clean on the outside, but they're soiled on the inside. And I know it. You may look beautiful on the outside, but I know the dirt that's on the inside. And that is something he sees in us as well. There's a second thing, second difference, and that is Jesus doesn't talk about persecution in this letter. And all the other six, he makes some reference to, I know you're under a lot of pressure. I know some of you have already been arrested. One of you has already been martyred. I know how hard it is, but I am with you. Here he doesn't mention that at all. 
Which makes me think maybe the Sardinians, the Sardians, they weren't experiencing persecution yet. And, and why not? The old Scottish clergyman George MacLeod once said, listen to this. He said, the greatest criticism of the church today is that nobody wants to persecute it. Maybe because there's nothing very much to persecute it about. You know, I, I think the devil looks at some churches and says, why would I get in the way of what they're doing? What they're doing is serving my purposes quite well. They're driving people away or they're preaching to them a message that, is, that doesn't save. They're, they're doing my work for me. I'm not gonna put any pressure on them because I don't wanna interrupt the good work they're doing for the forces of evil. Let that not be said about us. Just a little bit of backstory about Sardis. I find this kind of stuff interesting. Sardis was actually located high up above a valley and it was surrounded on almost all sides by high cliffs. And so for many, many centuries, and this was an ancient, ancient city, it was thought to be impregnable. You just couldn't invade Sardis because of its natural location. But one day, the, the Trojans, this is the sixth century BC, the, the, I'm sorry, the, the Persians, the Persians were camped in that valley watching, trying to figure out a way in. And they saw the lookout the guard on the lookout tower drop his helmet and it fell down the side of the mountain. They watched him climb down from the tower and then walk down this narrow path, this hidden path, and retrieve his helmet from the side of the mountain and then walk back up. And they said, aha, now we know our way in. And when the, when the sun went down, they snuck up the side of that mountain along that same path and overwhelmed the defenders of the city and claimed the city for their own. It happened again four centuries later with, with the Greeks. And so Jesus, his verdict is appropriate for Sardis. His verdict is, watch out, I am coming when you least expect it. Isn't it interesting? In many of these letters, Jesus says, watch out. Watch out for persecution, watch out for false teaching, watch out for division in your churches. Here he says, watch out for me, because I'm coming for you. I'm bringing my sword of judgment to you. That'd have to be a terrifying thing to read on a Sunday morning when your pastor gets up and says, here's a letter from Jesus. He says he's coming in judgment of us. Okay, there's a handful of us that are still walking in clean garments and you're okay, but the rest of us, we're in big trouble. And that's what Jesus is saying to this church. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with us? Well, I don't know what Jesus would say to us. I know what I think he would say. I know what I hope he would say, but I'm not the Lord. What I do know is this. So years ago, I'm gonna show my age. Years ago, we used to say, you better wake up and smell the coffee. Okay, does anybody under 50 ever say that anymore? Anybody, anybody? I don't know, but we do need to wake up and smell the coffee. We need to become aware of what's going on around us and in us both. Around us, meaning, Think about the fact that we live in, a, in an area that's growing so fast, the map makers and the census takers can't keep up. Some of you know this, you've lived here for 10 years or more and you've seen this area, Conroe and Montgomery County grow just by the thousands and people are still moving in. And a lot of those people don't know Jesus. And some of them are, are not from this part of the world. Some of them are not from this country. Some of them uh, are coming out of Houston. Some of them are coming from other states. Some of them are coming from other nations. The, the mission field is coming to us. What are we gonna do about that? 
See, I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but before every one of these seven messages, James has played a video of a different minister on staff talking about our vision. And if you're new here or you don't know this yet, our vision is 10,000 transforming relationships by the year 2030. So what does that mean? It means this. We know that people who don't know Jesus are very unlikely to just decide to show up in our church on a Sunday morning. So most of them will never hear me preach the gospel to them. We know they're not gonna just pick up a Bible and start reading. We know they're not gonna uh, pick up a gospel tract and, and read that. They're not gonna just spontaneously start following the Lord. And if you went around and, and tried to do a, a, a two-minute gospel presentation, they probably wouldn't hear it either. Although if you try good on you, it just doesn't work the way it once did. So if people in our community are gonna come to know Christ, it's probably going to take time. It's gonna take relationships with actual people that they know, whose lives they can observe, and they're gonna to have to see that you're not like all the others. You're not like their stereotype of Christians. You're not a hypocrite, you're real. And Jesus has done something in your life that they cannot deny. And they'll see that over a period of time, over months or maybe even years, and there will come a point where they will say, I wanna know what you have. Or there'll come a point where you're able to pray for them over a problem they're having and they'll say, you know, I need to know more about what you believe. And that's how people are gonna come to know Christ. And we wanna see that happen at least 10,000 times by the year 2030. And I, I got news for you. We can't do that by our own power. We just can't. We're too busy and, and we're too distracted and we're too weak but the Holy Spirit can do it for us. Now, here, I got some good news and bad news for you again, okay? The good news is the Lord's gonna reach people whether we do it or not. The glory of God and the salvation of souls is not dependent on the success of First Baptist Conroe. If we don't get in the work, if we don't do what we're called to do, God will use someone else. The bad news is if he uses someone else, what are we? We're just in the way? Are we just a living denial of who he is? Are we just singing our little songs and, and not making a difference? We will wither and die and, and Conroe will be better off without us if we're not doing the will of God. And so what we need is revival. Again, I don't wanna say that Jesus would say, First Baptist Conroe, you have a reputation for being alive but you're dead. I don't think that about us but we need to pray for revival nonetheless because we, as good as we may be, we're not where we should be, we're not where we could be, we're not doing all that we're called to do. So here's my challenges for us today, three things in response to this message. Number one, take an honest look in the mirror. Yeah, we need to pray for revival as a, as a whole and we will do that. This message, if I preach it the way I should, should be a little shorter than usual because we're gonna spend some time at the end in a little directed prayer together. Or I'm gonna say, pray for this and let you pray silently for it. One of the things we're gonna pray for is revival in our church and our nation. But revival starts with every one of us being honest with ourselves. And let's just face it, we have an infinite capacity for self-deception. It's like, it's like the difference between when a woman looks in a mirror and when a man looks in a mirror. And yes, I'm using broad generalizations, but usually when women look in the mirror, it's, it's terrible because they see all of their flaws. Even flaws that aren't really there. Oh, I look terrible today. When a man looks in the mirror, he says, yeah, I still got it. And you don't. <laughs> Listen, you don't. You know that last picture you took where you're like, golly, I look like a fat old man. That's you. 
That's the real you. So, so we need to be people who look at ourselves honestly and don't deceive ourselves. We can spot this in other people, can't we? We can spot it. If you've ever worked at a company where maybe one of your coworkers was the, the, the owner's nephew or the boss's daughter and, and they strutted around like they owned the place and you wanted to grab them by the lapel and say, you're only here because of your daddy. But they couldn't see that about themselves. Or maybe you know a young man who, who's like, well, you know, I guess I'll never get married because every woman I date is crazy as a loon. And you want to say, you know, the common denominator with all those women is you. Or maybe you're, you know, the teenager who's like, I don't know why I keep getting these mean teachers. They all hate me. And I'm like, yeah, I can see why. So we can see that in other people. Can we see that in ourselves? This capacity for self-deception. So, so I wanna challenge you in the midst of this, number one, to do something that is kind of scary, but is gonna be very, very useful. I really want you to do this when you get home. Heck, you can do it during the rest of the sermon, it won't offend me, but I want you to make two lists. On a piece of paper, on your smartphone, on a computer, make two lists, and the first list should say, things I can offer the kingdom of God. What are the things you bring to the table that can help God's mission in the world. Are you, a, are you a prayer warrior? Are you someone who is good at explaining the Bible to others? Are you highly compassionate? Are you very generous? Are you uh, someone who can fix things and you like helping others who can't fix things? Are you very hospitable? You love having people over to your house? What are some things you're good at that you can use to serve God? Write them down. And here's the second one, and this one is not nearly as fun, and that's things about me that need to change. And here's where you're gonna write down the stuff that your spouse has said or your kids have said or your parents have said or your brother or your sister or your best friend or your roommate and you blew them off and now you're gonna sit down and go, yeah, maybe I am really like that. This is where you list your bad habits. This is where you list those persistent sins that you keep stumbling into. This is where you list those character flaws that keep you from representing Jesus well. Those, those idols that keep you from giving him yourself, give, giving yourself to him fully. And you list them all out. And I got news for you, that second list is probably gonna be longer than the first, unless you've reached that state of sinless perfection. In which case, I don't know what the heck you're doing here, because I got nothing to tell you. But I don't see anybody getting up. So I think we're all in the same boat. That second list is gonna be longer. It's gonna be a little discouraging, but that's okay. That's how we grow. Second challenge. Put yourself in a position to be confronted by God. How often do you sit down and listen to what God has to say about you? The only way to do that is to open up his word. I hope that's not just something you do once a week. See, my, one of my goals in life is to help people see how useful it is, how, in fact, how impossible it is to live the way you're supposed to live without being in his word daily. And, and we've got a thousand excuses. Well, oh, I'm not much of a reader. I'm more of a math guy or I'm more of a mechanical person. And yet God's word is right there. It's free of charge. I mean, it's on your smartphone if you have one. Heck, my smartphone reads it to me if I ask it to. There's no reason why you can't read the word of God daily. And I don't just mean get through a chapter a day. I mean actually come before it and say, okay, God, whatever you have to say to me, give me ears to hear. Come before him humbly and hungrily and seeking 
knowledge and truth. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So I want you to raise your hand if you've ever had any kind of surgery. Anybody here? Okay. So here's what I know about surgery. I've, I've, I've gone through it myself. When you have surgery, nobody wants to have surgery, but when you have surgery, you want, you want to make sure that you've got a surgeon who knows what he's doing and you want to make sure that he has a, a sharp knife. Because you don't want some amateur digging around on you with a toothpick, right? You want, you want that guy to be able to cut out whatever's wrong and nothing else. And the word of God does that for us. When we really open up our hearts to God's word, it carves out those areas of sin and rebellion that we thought we had hidden successfully. It's, it, 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 commit, it, it does surgery on our hearts. So don't try to live for God without it. Number three, be transparent with the family of God. See, Jesus did not die just to be your personal Lord and Savior. He's that but he died to make you part of his body, part of his family. And part of the reason that you're in the family of God is not just so you can come on a Sunday and hear a sermon and sing some songs and go home feeling better about yourself. It's, it's so that there's a group of people who knows you well enough and loves you enough to tell you the truth when you don't wanna hear it. Are you opening yourself up to that? Are you making yourself available? Do the people of this church know you well enough and know that they can say anything to you that needs to be said. Right, here's a test, okay? Take those two lists I mentioned earlier. Sit down with somebody in this church, probably not your spouse, I don't wanna start any fights, but sit down with another member of this church that knows you well and say, right, listen, I wanna show you these two lists. You tell me, did I get it right? Do you see anything in me that I didn't put on here? And that's a humbling experience. But even go further than that, uh, just ask yourself questions like, when I tell stories to my life group or to my Christian friends, am I always the hero of the story and always, or always the victim? Because when you're a hypocrite, you're either one or the other. You're always, you're always beaten up on somebody who's evil or you're having evil done to you, but you're never the bad guy in your stories. You're never the one who has to repent and learn a lesson if you're a hypocrite. Uh, are you the one who always has to be heard? Your voice always must be heard and you always must have the last word. Are you the one who never can accept correction? Oh no, I wouldn't be like that. Well, what happened the last time somebody came to you trying to correct you or critique you? Did you accept that with humility or did you blast them out of the water? When's the last time you actually changed in response to something God was saying? When's the last time you gave a real apology? A real apology says, this is what I did to you. I don't have any excuses. It's not your fault. It's all on me. When's the last time you did that? See, I know this is not fun. Last week I told a story about riding in a, in a school bus and getting cow manure thrown at us. Go back and watch it online if you don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, that was fun, right? This is not fun. And I, I'm sorry. But I want, you to say, I want you to hear this. Remember Jack, the fake war hero that we talked about at the beginning? After he was exposed, he gave an interview to the local newspaper. 
And he told this reporter, he said, you know, the day that I confessed was the hardest day of my life, but it's the best thing I ever did. For all those years when people thought I was a hero, I knew what I really was and I felt horrible. It was like I was possessed of some kind of demon that, I, that was eating me up inside. And now, now that everybody knows, now that I've come clean, now I feel free. Even if people don't like me as much as they used to, now I'm real. Now I know who I am. And that same freedom can be ours. When we walk away from that mask we've been wearing and just say, this is who I am. These are the ways that I struggle. I don't wanna stay here. I wanna be up there. I wanna be where Jesus is. I wanna be like him. But part of me getting there is admitting how messed up I am now. And that's freedom. And here's the good news. We all have a tendency to excuse or ignore or or minimize our sins, but Jesus did the opposite. He took sins upon himself that weren't even his. We tend to avoid responsibility for our own flaws. Jesus took responsibility for our transgressions. And he didn't just take on our guilt and shame, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. His death didn't just bring us forgiveness, it brought us a chance for new life. Have you experienced that new life? Are you a new person, a different person than you were before? The baptisms we saw up there were meant to represent the person who was is no longer here. Now they're a new person in Christ and they always will be. Has that happened in your life? If not, in just a moment, you'll have a chance to come and take that step of obedience. If you have taken that step already, are you growing and becoming more like him? It only happens through honesty. Wake up and start living for him.